0: Well, if you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, we're going to pick up in the passage that we were in last week, and we're going to circle back around and take another look at it. I'm going to be using a term this morning um, that's a term that's not really a a prevalent term as much as it used to be. I, I don't because of the lack of usage, that the terminology no longer exists, or that it describes a methodology that people don't hold to any longer, I just think that it's become so much a part of the way that churches do the way that churches do the things that they do, that they no longer use the terminology for it, it's just that they've gone about doing things the way that they do things, And this is the way that they operate, whether they call it that or not. The term is seeker sensitivity, or a seeker-sensitive church. It's a term that you heard a lot 10, 15 years ago, and it works off of this premise that people are seeking after God, so we need to craft our services in such a way that it takes away any offensiveness, Or anything that would be difficult to explain or wrap your mind around because it might make any of the service too difficult for somebody to understand. So most decisions are made with the seeker in mind, not with the worshiper in mind, and certainly... Not with the one who we're supposed to gather to come together to worship in mind. Not the one who we're supposed to be here for to begin with. Seeker sensitivity has at the heart of it the kinds of questions that it asks sort of like this. Uh, Does this pique the curiosity of the seeker and make them want to come back another time. I don't hold to this perspective. I find it to be dangerous at best. I find it to be heretical at worst. But I want to explain a view. Um, that I don't hold to as fairly as possible. I don't want to build a straw man. So I want to take you into the mind for a moment of the people who have really developed these ideas. And the idea was to take any of the real meat out of Sunday mornings and then to make them as non-offensive and as non-theological as possible. And if you're going to have a venue for that kind of stuff, Then have venues for that kind of stuff during the week, whether it be small groups or programs or, or classes or workshops, and have that stuff go on throughout the week. But Sunday morning is all about the seeker and their sensibilities. And I man this is still very real. I just sat with a man who's starting a brand new church, and this is the model that he's using to kick off this church. So it may not be as prevalent, but you can't look at me as if this does not exist either. So a few signs that things are moving downhill pretty quickly. And if you ask me, they've started downhill if you are in the seeker-sensitive movement, but I digress. The focus began to be more on what will people think of God's word rather than preaching the full truth of God's word, whether or not they think, or regardless of what they think about it. A service began to be more about orchestrating an experience rather than prayerfully putting together a God-honoring worship service talk begins to be more about performance than whether something is God glorifying or not so employment begins to be more about who could perform in a crowd-pleasing fashion in a way that's received most popularly rather than who's the person that's going to be most faithful to God's word, like it says in Isaiah 66.1, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Verses like that have no place within seeker sensitivity. Teaching begins to be very much about life lessons that apply during the week and I can hang them on the fridge rather than being about lifting our eyes to the beauty and the majesty of our Savior. And the gospel began to be about how many pelts we can hang on the wall rather than how clearly we can articulate the only message that can reconcile you to the Father and bring a person from death to life. So after you've completely and entirely clinically scrubbed and whitewashed the service, delivered as non-offensively as possible by a bunch of folks who are more professional at being politically correct than loving Jesus and never calling people to take up their cross and follow the only one who is worth giving everything in, in, in this life for, All of this would be followed up with somebody setting the ambiance, because the ambiance is critical in seeker sensitivity, and that's where your $200,000 worth of lighting come in while some guy comes and softly strums his guitar with some other dude with a creepy voice saying, Come, come forward. Come, come to the altar. Receive Jesus. He's the friend you've always wanted. He'll make all of your wildest dreams come true. Jesus will give you a pony if you just come to the altar. And you guys know what it's like. I'm sure you've seen that. And they sit there and they hypnotize you for five minutes by calling you out of your seats. And they tell you all of these things that the cosmic genie Jesus will do for you. He's going to pay your bills. He's going to heal your ailments. And he'll even heal grandma if you just come forward to the magical space in the front of the church. Well, never mentioning anything about the God of the Bible. And then they post on Facebook later how they had 274. Salvations at their church of 80 people. I never know how that math works out. Um, And half of those people got saved for the 10th time that week. So um, that's my view on seeker sensitivity, in case you're wondering if I have a high view of it or not. Um, Well, this morning we're going to look at how Paul got saved, and a couple of things that you're going to notice is that God's methods do not look anything like what I just mentioned. Which is something that you're going to see throughout the book of Acts and it's going to constantly leave you scratching your head saying well then how did we get here and the second thing you're going to see is we don't have to make the truth look cool the truth is just as great as it's always been regardless of whether the culture is receptive to it or not and the fact that God is still mighty to save will always be cool that will never run out of its coolness. So we're going to go backwards in the passage that we looked at last week and focus primarily on 916, which I have affectionately titled the least seeker-sensitive sermon in the whole Bible. I mean, compare (laughs) what you're about to hear with all the gobbledygook that I just described to you and then you look at the word that Ananias was given for Saul in verse 16. Hey, Saul, come to Christ so that I could show you how much you're going to suffer the rest of your life for my name's sake. That's not exactly a seeker-sensitive sermon, is it? I mean, and, uh, look, just a quick note. I'm not against just so that none of you end up coming up to me and saying, hey, well, we should still make things nice and everything. I'm not against making things nice, so don't be that guy. I'm not against being sensitive to seekers. We should explain things. Things. We should help people understand things. We should remove unnecessarily confusing things from our services and plan our services well so that they are well put together and they point everything to Jesus and there is no distraction in there whenever we can guard against it. But what I am against, and I would argue that this passage and others like it are against, is watering down the good news for the sake of obtaining numbers. So this week, we're going to slow down a little bit and we're going to look at Saul's conversion. We're going to ask a couple of questions. Would Paul's calling of come to Jesus and I will show you how much you need to suffer for my namesake be something that would sell today in modern evangelical Christianity? Number two is do we under-equip are Christians, and even set them up by for, fa- uh, for failure by neglecting to tell them that this is going to be part of the package along the way. Number three, if we do not explain the top two enough, how do we even explain that Christ is enough? For them when they suffer, if we don't take time explaining Christ and how he relates to suffering to begin with. And lastly, we're actually going to look at every single passage where Paul describes either his sufferings or his callings to suffer in the book of Acts to show you the top three items are going to be true. That suffering is part of the call to Jesus. That suffering was something that God always told Paul part of the call to Jesus. That Christ was always enough when he suffered, showing that he was enough every single time he suffered that's why i'm going to take you through every instance in acts and hopefully it'll get us to get a biblical grasp on our calling and to realize that just like christ was enough for paul he is enough for us and the application i really want you to home is these chapters are all about the outward movement of the gospel. These chapters are all about the gospel moving outward. Excuse me. And sometimes you can really fall into feeling, I don't know if anybody else struggles with this, but I fall into feeling this way. I would be so much more effective for the gospel if I wasn't constantly suffering or struggling with fill-in-the-blank. I would be so much more of an effective of a witness, of a missionary, of an evangelist if I wasn't constantly struggling or suffering with fill-in-the-blank. Well, we've been taking three weeks to look at the outward move of the gospel, and we're going to see how the suffering fits in contextually with the outward move of the gospel, Because you're going to see that by tracing Paul's suffering through his life, that the gospel moved forward because of his suffering, not in spite of it. And that's true for you who sits here as well. If you're going through a difficult time and you're here today, first of all, I'm really glad you're here today, particularly for this sermon. And I want you to know that the gospel will be working in and through your life. Because of the suffering that God is allowing into your life, not in spite of it. So we'll start our reading at verse 10. We have Bibles in the seat backs in front of us. Um, It's also going to be projected behind us. We uh, went through the whole passage last week. I'm going to go quickly through 10 because 15 is really where I want to start. So looking at verse 10, it says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of the Lord. Look, and there is a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen... In a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all of those who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name to the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you had come, sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. So the Lord instructs Ananias exactly what to do and say. And it's not like Ananias does this without struggle. He was an obedient servant, but even though he's an obedient servant, he's saying, Lord, I know of this guy. This guy's bad news. This is the same Saul of Tarsus that's going around killing people and he has letters to arrest people to be able to take them in to the high priest. this is not a calling that I really want to have on my life, Lord. But let me make it clear that just because you're an obedient servant doesn't always mean that you're going to like the thing that you are called to. Um, My guess is... They probably had like the sign-up to be the guy who lays hands on Saul of Tarsus Day at church that Sunday, and Ananias was missing, so he got volunteered. That's the way our elder board works. I don't know if that's the way you guys do things, but it's like that job that nobody wants to do. You look around, and you're like, Tim's not here this week. Guess who just got volunteered? So Ananias gets volunteered. I don't think it was like that. I think God volunteered him. But anyway, so they look around the room and see Ananias isn't there. And he gets to be the one to go and lay hands on it. And I'm not kidding. Ananias really struggled with this calling. And friends, I want to make it clear to you that not everything that you are called to is going to be fun. We badly need people to teach the younger kids. I wanna, I'm just going to give some pitches for some ministries that we have here. And some of you hate little kids. I'm sorry, you're the ones with the troll of a heart, not me. Um, But some of you hate little kids. We badly need people to teach the little kids. So that might be an Ananias call for you. That might be something that you're doing more out of faithfulness than, yes, I have a real passion to teach the gospel to little children. We need people to safely sign the kids in and out and to ensure their safety over at the front desk that gets backed up over there and you know that it's always the computers always going out and there's always angry parents sitting there and I'm sure nobody's like yes that is the ministry that I want to be the kingdom maker that I always dreamt of being we need people to help at the sound booth that's a hard ministry but it's a necessary And you see in verse 14, we see that Ananias struggled a bit with his calling, but God wasn't really looking for a vote about how Ananias felt about the matter. So in verse 15, God makes things pretty clear. He says, we can do things your way, or we could do things my way, or we could just do things my way is basically the way that the Lord lays it out to him. And obvious but quick tangent. When we do things God's way, they might not always make sense to us, but I promise you, they always have a purpose attached to them. God's ways are not always and rarely are the easiest of ways. God's ways rarely allow for shortcuts to be taken along the way. They might even take us down some unexpected or unwanted or awkward paths but God always has a purpose in it, and God's way will always be better than our way. And then we see the least seeker-sensitive call to Christ of all time. Come, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake." in verse 16. So there's no drawn-out altar call. There's no pleading with people to just come up to the front and fill the altar. There's no offering of some free gift. Because believe it or not, salvation was enough of a gift. I remember visiting a church. I don't know if any of you guys. Sorry to make fun. I'm just feeling snarky today. But I remember visiting a church where they did this long altar call, and if you came up, you received a free gift. And the thought hit me: like, isn't Jesus supposed to be the gift? Isn't eternal life through Christ enough of a gift? Do I really need a fridge magnet? A John Piper book and a coffee cup? Like if that's really the thing that's pushing me over the edge into eternity, then have I really believed on the gospel to begin with? And I like coffee cups and John Piper books. I'm not I'm not you can give me one of those, but you get the point. And there's certainly no offer of a free Life full of blessing and no trials. I mean, he's given exactly the opposite. Look, God does bless us when we come to Christ in this life. Absolutely, he does. He gives us a brand new identity in Christ. If you're here and you are in Christ, you have been made new. Even if you don't feel new, you've been given a new identity in Jesus. He frees us from living for a bunch of junk that doesn't satisfy any longer. That's a gift that he gives us in this life. He frees us from the rat race if we allow him to and actually want to be freed. He gives us victory over besetting sin in our lives and he gives us joy in the midst of opposition. So the blessings that he gives are real but they're primarily eternal, though. There will be a day when there is no more sickness, pain, or death. There will be a day where we don't have to struggle with sin ever again. There will be a day where everything that has been broken will be made right. There will be a day where we will be in the presence of Jesus Christ forever and ever Where the seeker-sensitive folks and the health and wealth people miss out on is when these blessings are supposed to take place. They're not all supposed to be cashed in now. A relationship with Christ is a present blessing that gives us an eternal security that we're going to be able to cash in for the rest of our Lives. So God told Paul how much he would suffer, but Paul still came, which shows, that absolutely proves beyond the shadow of a doubt, folks, that we cannot be the one that makes the choice. Because who would choose that? Come follow after me. Leave any sense of illusion of certainty that you've ever thought that you have had or that you would know and come and follow me and suffer until the day you die. Who's going to be the one that says, that sounds like a wonderful plan for my life? It has to be a God-initiated call for us to be able to say yes to that. Now, there will be beautiful, incredible, and unfathomable joy mixed in with the suffering, and Paul was kind of known for those two things, right? He was known for being the apostle who knew how to suffer, That dude knew how to take a punch. When I think of the Apostle Paul, I think of that scene in Cool Hand Luke when Paul Newman just keeps going down time after time. And the dude's like, just stay down. And he's like, you'll have to kill me to keep me down. And he just keeps getting up over and over and over. And that's what I think of when I think of the Apostle Paul. But he's also known, not only for being the one who can suffer, he knew how to rejoice. What do you do to a guy like that? I mean, it would be like if in that scene of Cool, scene of cool Hand Luke, if every time you hit him, the guy was just like, yes, give me more. Or you'd just be like, what, who are you? You're some kind of freak, man. I mean, it, the guy was awesome. So Paul's sufferings, and I'm going to shoot through these really quickly, but it's amazing when it says, I will tell you how much you must suffer for my name's sake, there are 32 of them in just the 16 chapters of Acts that Paul is listed in. and That's not counting any of Paul's epistles. That's how much he must suffer for his name's sake. So you want to know how far he had to suffer? First, you don't have to go very far for the first one it says that his former best friends right there in verse 23 of chapter 9 planned on killing him because of how he was being used to spread his new faith in Jesus I'm sure that a lot of us, our experience to coming to Christ is a little bit different than that. Verse 25 even says that he had to be let down from the walls of the place that he was staying in a basket, meaning he had to be hidden to escape the secret plan of those who were trying to kill him. Second one we see is the people are afraid of him in verse 26, and they start using their past his past against them. Any of you who have done stuff in your past that you were ashamed of, how would you like it if every time you walked into a room, your past walked in five feet ahead of you, and people were already whispering about you, the scarlet letter that was going to be on your chest? That's what was happening to Paul in verse 26. In verse 29, they tried to put him to death again. You try to put me to death twice within six verses. I don't know about you, but I'm probably going to lay low for a little bit. But Paul didn't. He was opposed by the most famous person in town in Acts 13.8, where we see this magician following him around and trying to be a thorn to him. He incited a riot that started a race war simply because he brought hope to the Gentiles and treated the Gentiles as if they were equals in thirteen. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium stoned him and dragged him out of the city, and he was so beaten up when they dragged him out of the city that they assumed that he was dead in fourteen nineteen, In verse 22, it just generally says that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in their faith, saying, through many trials and tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. And I have a few things to add on that one. First of all, those are the kind of trials that really take it out of me a lot more than the gigantic ones. Because the gigantic ones, you brace yourself for, right? You know that it's coming. You're like, I'm ready for this. I'm calling up all my prayer people I'm going to be surrounded by encouragers, I'm going to be in the word I'm getting geared up for this but here it's just saying they're going around trying to strengthen people and they are just being beaten down and hacked away at as they are trying to strengthen the church. Man, those kind of trials just hurt. And then in Acts 15, 36-41 it says that there's such a sharp disagreement arose between the man who had been Paul's best friend and the person who advocated for him when the murderer first came into the church that his best friend ends up splitting and they can't hang out anymore. So that's part of his Christian experience. And then in Acts 16, 6-8 six it says that he planted anywhere between four and six failed church plants. Think about that. Today in America, 85% of church plants fail. And 50% of those church plants that fail, the person who planted it ends up being divorced. That is a... He planted four to six failed church plants in Acts 16, verses 6 through 8. In Acts 16, 16 through 21, Paul is chased around and harassed by a demon-possessed girl. That's probably when I'm throwing up my hands and I'm just like, all right, I'm done. You know, I just planted six failed churches. Now I even have demon-possessed chicks chasing me around wherever I Like, I'm out of here. This is, enough is enough. Acts 16. 22 through 23, Paul and his traveling companions were both publicly beaten with rods and thrown into prison. Acts 17.5, the people from Thessalonica formed a mob and they dragged the guy Jason, who all he did was let Saul stay at his house, and they dragged him into the middle of town and beat him with rods for letting Paul spend the night. In Acts eighteen twelve we see in Corinth a ruler of the area brought him up on baseless charges and threw him out of town. In Acts nineteen twenty-eight, the Ephesians start a riot, and literally the language there is try to rip Paul into shreds just because they thought that he was insulting their god Artemis of the Ephesians. In Acts 20, 17-38, Paul is leaving the church of Ephesus that he had spent two and a half years planting, and he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. These people would become his best friends, and he's crying on their neck saying, as soon as I leave, I'm telling you that savage wolves are going to come in, and they are going to completely destroy the church that we had just spent two and a half years of our blood, sweat, and tears trying to build together for Christ. In Acts 21, 11, a prophet tells Paul that if he continues towards Jerusalem that he will be shackled and taken away in chains. In Acts 21, 27, Paul goes down to the temple to make a vow, worship, and make peace with the Jewish leaders, but he's beaten, seized, and arrested instead. Um... Boy, there's just so many more. He had such a fun life. In Acts 21, 28 through 40, a group of people gather to make up lies about him, slander him, and try to ruin his reputation and integrity. And in verse 31, it says they even attempted to kill him. In 22, 22, 22, when Paul is standing before the trial, it says that the crowds begin to riot so much that they had to take him out of there because they were afraid that he was going to be torn apart. In Acts 22, 24 through 25, They stretched him out on a stretcher. Have any of you ever seen a stretcher? Think the end of Braveheart if you've ever seen a stretcher. And it says that they began to scourge him as he was stretched out. In Acts 23... 12 through 22, a group of devout Jews get together who used to be his best friends, mind you. So if you've ever experienced betrayal here, anybody ever experienced betrayal on behalf of another Christian brother or sister and you know how painful that could be? Well, imagine all of your Christian brothers and sisters that you had done life through getting together and saying, we will not eat or drink again until we've killed this person that's what you have going on in that passage in Acts 24 7 it says that Paul was taken into custody with much violence in 24 26 to 27 it says that Paul was put into prison because of Felix and Felix kept him there hoping that he would get a bribe in order to let him out. So all Paul had to do is give him a little bit of coin, and he could have been free, but he didn't want to sacrifice his integrity or the cause of the gospel. In 25.3, it says they summoned Paul from prison to Jerusalem because they wanted to ambush him along the way and kill him before he got there. In Acts 26.30-32, Agrippa declares that he had done nothing wrong, meaning he tried Paul, There's no wrongdoing, but he says, I'm going to send you back to prison anyway because I don't know what to do with you. In Acts 27, Paul was lost at sea for days with no food or no water. In Acts 27:39, Paul was shipwrecked and just escaped being murdered by the crew. In Acts 28:3, after escaping the shipwreck, he starts to build a fire for all the people who had just been involved in the shipwreck and is bitten by a poisonous snake as he's building them a fire. The people had just plotted to kill him as he was trying to escape from this shipwreck that he wasn't even trying to escape from. And then he's re-imprisoned in Acts 28. He's eventually beheaded after his imprisonment. That's 30 in 18 chapters of Acts. If I was to read to you the entire book of Second Corinthians, it just goes deeper and deeper. So some wrap-up points for you guys to take from this and why I wanted to survey all these to show that we don't want to preach an easy believe of gospel is, first of all, God has not called us to water down the gospel to make it more sensitive to a PC culture, nor could we ever come up with anything to make it more beautiful. That's the thing that blows my mind when people think that they're going to water down the gospel so that they can make it more applicable and more beautiful. Do you honestly think that the thing that you're going to invent is going to be more beautiful than what God invented. Do you honestly consider yourself or fancy yourself such a good story writer that you're gonna write a better story than God wrote to be our eternal story through the gospel? Number two is up until this point, we see that God had been using human instruments to take the gospel outward, but now we see that he uses other things, such as pain, to move his people to where he wants to. Has anybody ever been moved a certain direction that maybe you thought you weren't going to go because pain moved you there and you ended up somewhere that you never thought you were going to end up and you're like, man, this was pain that moved me to this place. And you can look back on it and you say, thank God for that pain because God knew that I needed exactly that at exactly that time. Number three, if you're here and you're going through tremendous trial, it does not mean that God is not working through you. It just means that God's working through you in a way that may not be comfortable to you at this time. So why go backwards and look at Paul's calling and response? Because first is it makes sure that the gospel that was preached to you is the true gospel. There is too much easy believe-ism that has been preached Today, You need to hear the true gospel that there was nothing that you could possibly ever have done to be able to atone for your own sin. And you are trusting in one of two things to make atonement for your sin. Either you think that you are going to live your life self-atoning for it yourself and paying the price for your own sin. And it still will not be enough when you get to the end of your life, no matter how moral of a life you live. Or you can believe that Christ atoned for your sin for you. Fully at the cross, said that it was finished, he took his righteousness, positionally put it on you, took your unrighteousness,, off, put it on himself, and when he said it is finished, he paid both for your unrighteousness, gave you his righteousness, then he walked out of the grave, conquering the death that you deserved, and gave you eternal life that 's the true gospel. So if you 've heard anything less than that, that 's not the gospel. It also makes sure that the gospel, not only that was preached to you, but the gospel that you believed in was the true gospel. Is that what you have believed in? If you're, if you're here, I'm going to give you a quick litmus test to see whether you've believed in the true gospel. If you're here because you're thinking, if I read my Bible enough, if I go to church enough... If I do enough stuff, then I can make up for all the bad stuff that I did formerly in my life. Then you're still trying to atone for your own sin. And you haven't trusted what Christ did for you on your behalf at the cross. Because there is never enough that you could ever do to be able to atone for your own sin. So what are you believing in? Do you, either, you have to believe one of the two. You either believe that Christ paid for the whole thing or that you're going to pay the whole thing. Those are the only two people that can pay it. You can't look to the guy to the right or your left and be like, can you pay for it for me? It doesn't work like that. Either Jesus paid it all or you pay it all. Number three, it shows that God has not stopped working in your life in spite of trials. Look, there should be no such thing as us saying something like God could really, working in my life if it just wasn't for this. And brothers and sisters, please let that be an encouragement to you. I've sat with so many of you who are unemployed, underemployed, going through physical maladies, going through situations with your families that are just absolutely heartbreaking and horrendous. And I know the enemy has you exactly where he wants you when he tells you things like, you can't really be used by God until you clear this or that out of the way. That's a lie from the pit of hell. God is allowing those things to be in your life because he wants to show himself miraculous on his own behalf and show you how good he truly is. It's not that this thing has to be cleared out so that God could be working. God is working, even in the midst of that thing going on in your life. And whatever the this is, just might be the thing that God is using to bring about a giant work in your life that you would have never been able to have seen otherwise. And lastly, it shows us that the thing that we often think of as our biggest diversion is actually God's way of taking us or keeping us exactly where he wants us to be so that we could be able to say, listen to these verses, it's only if we believe this gospel that we could say these truths in Philippians chapter 3. It says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen to this. That I may know him Brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you're going through tremendous trial, please be encouraged by this. This was Paul's prayer as he writes this from prison that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You can only say those words if you've believed in the true one and only gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that there is a true gospel and that because of it, Lord, we can look at anything this world can throw at us and just say, Lord, I just want to know you and the power of your resurrection, even if it means sharing in your sufferings, even if it means being conformed to the image of your death, By whatever means necessary, may this world be rubbish, and may Christ be all in all. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.